This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. Hey, cultivated listeners. Happy New Year. It's been a long year already. But I wanted to share a quick word about this episode, because it gives me a chance to talk a bit about where we're going in the light of where we've been. When I first launched this podcast back in 2016, my hope was to find people doing interesting, culture-shaping work, or important work in reflecting on and thinking about the world we live in. And I think, in large part, we've done that. I look back now on conversations I've had with people like NFL running back Justin Forsett, the novelist Brett Lott, Lecrae, Miroslav Volf, and so many others, as great examples of people who are focused on doing great work and encouraging others to be a faithful presence wherever they are. In 2019, I was asked to consider what it might look like for me to join the team at Christianity Today. And I got really excited about the vision, about where things were headed, about what kinds of creative storytelling opportunities might emerge. So in February of last year, I joined the staff And in the months since then, in spite of COVID, we've been doing some work behind the scenes that I can't wait to share with you. Some of it's already launched. We're producing a show called Adopting Hope, featuring Joyce Dalrymple and Sasha Parker, telling stories about adoption, foster, and spiritual mothering. We're also producing a podcast called The Art of Pastoring, featuring Jared Wilson and Ronnie Martin, offering reflections on pastoral work that are both practical and deeply personal. And we have more coming, more that I'm excited about that we're not quite ready to share yet. But as 2021 kicks off, I wanted to share this conversation with you in particular. It's with CT's CEO and president, Timothy Dalrymple. You'll hear about where he came from, how he came to CT, and where things are headed. I'm actually pretty hopeful for 2021, and I'm excited to be here at CT, so I'm really glad to share this conversation with you. Okay, on with the show. I always cared a great deal about my faith and cared a great deal about the church. There was kind of a, even a a desperation, I think, in my approach to faith. Tim Dalrymple's dad was at sometimes a pastor and at others working in the computer industry in Silicon Valley. But at all times, he and his family were invested in and connected to the life of the church. I was the kind of kid who would just stare at the ceiling for an hour or two every night and wrestle with the, the big questions wonder where I came from, where I'm going, what's going to happen to me after I die. So it's not at all a surprise to me that ministry has been such a significant part of my life. I helped to launch a youth group at my church. I attended a a relatively small church. And then as I got into college, was very involved in college ministry and in a variety of different ways. Really what I wanted, though, was to have a career, you know, if I was not a world historical genius on the scale of a Tolkien or a Lewis, I at least liked the form of their career, right? That they, they had academic writing that they did as well as fictional writing. And that was my earliest sort of aspiration. There's a pine warbler sitting on a hollow limb. He seems to have the whole morning out right in front of him. And everything he sings from the branch that he's sitting on, it seems to hush the leaves and the colors all around. First he sings, and then he goes, and what it means, it's hard to know. From 
Christianity Today, you're listening to Cultivated, conversations about faith and work. I'm Mike Cosper, and on today's episode, I'm talking to Timothy Dalrymple about his journey to becoming the president and CEO of CT. It's a winding story, academic heights, catastrophic neck injury, ministry in prisons, and you'll hear his vision for CT's work with the global church. It's a great story, so stay with us. Like a lot of kids, I was involved in uh, soccer and baseball, probably starting around five or six. And then we moved. We moved from the South Bay Area, the South San Francisco Bay Area, out into a town called Tracy, which was kind of a commuter town. And uh, we were too late for soccer signups. The 1984 Olympics had just been on the television. And in 84 was when the men's team won the gold. Mary Lou Retton won the gold. You know, we won a lot of medals because the Soviets were not attending that year. <laughs> and uh, and I was just doing flips and cartwheels around the house. And my parents figured, you know, I was either going to die or I needed to get some in- some training in gymnastics. So they took me to a gym and I just took to it right away. And it turned out from day one that I could do all of my splits. And I was very flexible and, and had some some natural strength to work with and So very early on, you know, the coaches began to talk about Olympic potential and so forth. And that was, of course, very exciting to me as a young person. And that, too, was a real laboratory of faith for me, my experience in gymnastics. Gymnastics can be a scary sport. It's if you play tennis, you're always upright. (laughs) If you're if you're doing swimming, you know, it's kind of a repetitive motion. And I often felt as though I was in danger of fairly catastrophic injury. And that's that's a part of the gymnastics life if you really fail to, <laughs> to perform your, your skills high up and flipping and twisting in the air, then it can work out pretty poorly for you, right? And that was a great spur to prayer. I also just had a lot of injuries over the years, as well as some real moments of success. And so through the ups and the downs, I think God showed his faithfulness. And through it all, I just, I remember praying over and over again, just for God's presence that I felt like if I get injured, if I do well, if I do poorly, all of it's going to be okay if God is present with me and if I'm, I'm conscious of that. And I, I felt like God was was really faithful to walk with me through those. I'm always kind of fascinated by elite athletes because the drive and discipline it takes to achieve at a certain level. I mean, I know you went to Stanford you were an Olympic contender. Was that drive internal? Was that uh, something you learned along the way? Or have you just always been kind of driven to push yourself your whole life? The drive was certainly internal. I don't know if it's an overinflated sense of my own importance or just <laughs> a, a, a desire to push myself and see what I'm capable of. But I've always wanted to do the most challenging things that I can do. You know, I'm an Enneagram 3, if that helps to understand me a little bit. And I think I'm a little extreme in that respect, whether it was in the physical realm with sports, in the mental realm with academics, or in the spiritual realm with ministry. I really wanted to press myself and do the absolute best that I was capable of doing. So with gymnastics, it was a, a wonderful opportunity to learn how to excel in something. 
Tim excelled quickly at the sport. He started late, at eight years old, but at age 10, he won a state championship. And at 12, he made the junior national team. At 15, he won the national championship. I'm so grateful now that I've had experiences like that, mm-hmm. of, of seeing God's faithfulness and the miraculous ways in which God provides. Because I think it's done a lot to give me courage, not necessarily in myself, but courage in the provision of God as other challenges have come along. Tim went to Stanford for college, and his freshman year, they won the NCAA title in gymnastics. During his sophomore year, he was the top-ranked gymnast in the NCAA and working towards making the Olympic team. We go to San Jose State, which is just a little drive south from Stanford. It was a small dual, dual meet, and we're warming up. And I had noted even that the high bar looked a little bit loose, but jumped up and, and I was doing a new dismount, a triple backflip dismount from the high bar. And so my practice in order to kind of confront the fear was to jump up and do it on the first turn and just get it out of the way. And so I jumped up, cranked a, around the bar, a couple a giants around the bar a couple times and went to do the triple backflip and immediately just felt like it was off and did not have enough rotation to, to complete three flips. So I came out of the tuck, opened up. I managed to miss the bar on the way down. I didn't hit it, but I landed partway on the mat, partway off at an awkward angle, and it just loaded up a lot of pressure on two vertebrae in my cervical spine. And it felt weird. It didn't immediately feel terribly painful. It almost felt like a hot water balloon had burst inside my neck. And so the first thing I do is just move my hands and feet and make sure I still, still have mobility and sensation. And thankfully, I never lost that. And I was quickly checked out by our medical person. And they said, OK, you seem fine. So I, I continued to warm up and tumbled on the floor exercise to warm up for the competition. The competition began. I competed on the pommel horse, but it was getting very painful uh, very quickly. And so I stopped out of the competition at that point. And it was still, uh, you know, being a young and stubborn, seemingly invincible, at least to himself, young man, it was still a couple days before I went into the hospital. By the time I went into the hospital, every time I set my foot on the ground, it just sent terrible pain up and down the spine. Hmm. I went in and said, I need an x-ray on my neck. They saw the x-ray and just flipped out and, and came running into the room and said, sit up straight look straight forward and don't move. And they kind of ran back out and then they ran back in and said, we need to admit you to the hospital right away. I said, okay, I start to jump up and reach for my backpack. They're like, no, 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 you can't do that. You know, they put me in a wheelchair and before I know it, I'm, I'm up in a room and they're, they're putting me in a halo, hmm. which is where they screw kind of this metallic circle directly into your skull, which is about as fun as it sounds. And then they attach that to a cable. They run a cable over a pulley. They add weights. And uh, they use that to kind of straighten you out and get you um, secure so that you're, you're not likely to do further damage to your spinal cord. Because what they saw was a ruin inside my neck of one vertebra, you know, really badly broken and resting against the spinal cord, another that was also broken. I knew at that point that my Olympic aspirations were done. That was difficult. But when the neurosurgeon came to me to explain what he was seeing, 
He said, you know, Tim, you are a very, very lucky man. It's a miracle that you are not paralyzed for the rest of your life. It could have been worse. I, it was high enough that it would have, I would not have been able to breathe on my own. Hmm. And so it could have been not only quadriplegia, but death. So at the same time that I found out my career as a gymnast was over, I found out that I had been saved from far worse fate. And the sense of God's presence there in the hospital room was as profound as anything that I had ever experienced. Your ability to receive that seems pretty surprising. How much dedication you had put into your gymnastics career prior to that. Well, let's go back to that overly expansive sense of self that I mentioned <laughs> earlier. I always desired to achieve within the uh, athletic realm, but I also felt like, well, that's something that I'll do early in life, and it's not really the most important thing. And what I accomplish or hope to accomplish in other areas will have a much more lasting impact. And so the gymnastics career may give me certain experiences, but it's not really the the main thing in my life. And so I was very serious about my academics. I was very serious about my faith. And so my relationship with gymnastics, and I think this is true for a great many gymnasts and a great many elite athletes, it was a love-hate relationship. Hmm. So there was the the love part of me, the the part that loved gymnastics that found it difficult. There was the part of me that hated gymnastics that felt like, wow, now I'm going to be able to go on mission trips. Now I'm going to be able to actually devote myself more wholeheartedly to the pursuit of what I really think is my vocation for the long term. And so I was fine with that. Now I will say that there's there was a time, so I went into the gym there at Stanford. This is after I broke my neck. And there was an older gymnast. Uh, he was no longer part of the team. He was just visiting, but he had been a, a figure I had looked up to. And he said, you know, now it's time for you. You learned how to excel in gymnastics. Now it's time for you to take everything you learned and excel in something else. Hmm. That felt right to me. I always felt like God's call for me was really outside of the gym. And now God had taught me so much. And I was so grateful for that. I would not go back and change the experiences that I had because I think they formed a really essential part of my character and my calling. So even, you know, I decided I, I believed God's calling in my life was to be a Christian voice within the secular university. Hmm. And I decided to focus my studies on how people make sense of suffering philosophically and theologically. And that had been a, a fairly consistent theme for me because of my history of injuries Granted, I, I should say, you know, many, many people have more experience of suffering earlier in life than I do. But I felt as though this experience, and especially as I learned that I would have chronic pain, that it would allow me to bring a certain personal passion and persistence to the search for understanding around suffering. So it was a question of, you know, this breaking my neck is just something that happened and it has nothing further to do with my life story, or is it something that I welcome into my sense of vocation, hmm. and I chose the latter. The years that followed were both full and formative. At Stanford, he got involved in campus ministry, studied overseas, went on several international missions trips, and met his wife, Joyce. I felt God's call in my life was to be a Christian voice at a secular university, so, so I went about getting the degrees from there that I would need to do that. 
went to Princeton Seminary. At Princeton Seminary, I did a youth ministry as well as prison ministry. And the youth ministry was in a Chinese church. My wife, and she's Chinese-American, so we were attending this Chinese-American church in Princeton. And I became the youth pastor there. So I would preach often on the same day, early in the morning at this prison congregation, which was uh, predominantly African-American, about 200 men, many of them just hulking strong, right? (laughs) But it was this, it was a call and response sort of black church environment. And it was fascinating because I had not had a lot of experience with that. I had some in college, my college years. So I would preach there and it would be raucous, right? And, And it was so, it was exciting for me as a preacher because people would shout things out they'll shout out a verse or a phrase and and you can kind of riff on that for a while. And then, you know, Lord willing, it all weaves together in the end in a way that feels miraculous. And, you know, you can see the work of God there. Then I would go and, and preach at this wonderful Chinese American church in Princeton, but it was very quiet, right? It was people uh, were fairly stoic. So you get to see, even on the same day, the diversity of the body of Christ and uh, different forms of participating in Christian community. Given that you felt like you were going to be in an academic environment, what led you away from that? Well, I went on to Harvard, uh, to the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences, and pursued my PhD there in philosophy of religion, and loved it. I really don't have negative things to say about my experience within academia. Well, I I don't know if that's entirely true. It is true to say that I loved it, that I love reading and writing and teaching. I loved the research. I produced two master's theses uh, during my Princeton years and then a dissertation on Kierkegaard and specifically how Kierkegaard understood the varieties of human sufferings and the role that they play within the journey to faith and the life of faith in the world. All of it was fantastic. But toward the end of the dissertation and toward the end of my doctoral program, I was looking at what was on the job market and I could not bring myself to apply. There's one exception, and that was a a great works-based program, uh, St. John's College in Annapolis, that I found pretty interesting. And so I applied there and they said, well, the great news is if we still had a job to give you, we'd give you the job. <laughs> and the bad news is <laughs> the person who was retiring decided not to. And this was kind of as the economy was collapsing 2007, 2008. Suddenly people's 401ks were worth a fraction of what they had been previously. That was fine. I was still finishing up my dissertation. But there were other positions that should have been appealing to me, and yet I couldn't bring myself to do it. At the same time, I was approached by some tech executives who were interested in starting a religion website that they imagined as a kind of WebMD of religion. And they called it Pathios. And they wanted me to get involved. And I became the managing editor of the Evangelical Channel. So I finished my PhD. I I began to teach um, at Harvard. and, And I was doing this with Pathios. And I just found, wow, I, I love this what I'm doing with Pathios. It's, it makes use of all of my experience in philosophy of religion and also my love for writing, but it also has this entrepreneurial aspect that is so fun. And as opposed to the rather glacial pace of academic discourse, there was kind of the daily feedback and the daily engagement with people online. This is, again, this is 2008 now, 
and into 2009, the blogosphere is exploding, social media is exploding, everybody's going online to talk about life's most important questions. And I wanted to shape an evangelical voice within that conversation. Eventually, I threw in full-time with Pathios and left academia behind, at least for now, and we'll, we'll see where life, life takes me eventually. Tim eventually became the director of content, and then the VP of business development. Along the way, he built relationships with a number of ministries, nonprofits, and think tanks that needed help with storytelling and moving their work forward into the 21st century. I began to do a fair amount of consultative work on the side, and that grew very quickly into something that I was not able to do alone. So I started my own business and uh, ultimately made that my focus. That's called Polymath, and that grew into a full-service creative agency that uh, was able to come alongside, and still, still does, come alongside businesses, ministries, other nonprofits, uh, churches, and et cetera, that are doing worthwhile work and help them really excel, help them define their strategy and their brand and help them design and develop video and develop other kinds of content and their website and their apps. And, you know, there were people on the team who were far more skilled than I was at all of their respective areas of expertise. But I really got to be involved at the strategy level. And I just loved coming alongside the leaders of organizations that were doing good work in the world and helping them do it even better, hopefully. It was during your time at Polymath when you and I met. We had mutual friends and the, the folks over at Philos, the Philos Project. And uh, we got to collaborate on the Jerusalem podcast. Tell me how that project came together and what the vision for it was. Yeah, so one of the persistent themes in my work through Polymath, partly because of my educational background, was doing things in the Bible and theology space. Philos Project is about helping American Christians better understand the situation in Israel and the Middle East, and raising up a generation of leaders who are more informed on those matters. So we ended up developing a wide variety of content for the Philos Project. But the one that was really a passion project for me was this Jerusalem podcast. In, in all my trips over to Israel for the Museum of the Bible and for Bible Journey, I just fell in love with the city of Jerusalem and the old city in particular. I loved to go there and just wander around the city at night. And, and it feels like you've been transported back in time. And and Jerusalem is, I, I'm persuaded, it's just the world's most, most fascinating city. And it's seen enormous industrial scale suffering. I mean, there's so many times Jerusalem is a sacred city and also a slaughter bank. And those two things are related. I mean, the alleyways of Jerusalem just resonate with the history of prophets and princes and kings and messiahs and wars and pestilence. And it's, you know, one of the things that you do if you're a, an archaeologist in a place like Jerusalem is you mark out a space and you just dig down. And as you dig down, let's say you've kind of marked out a 20 by 20 space. As you dig down, you're going deeper and deeper into these layers of history that have just all been lit thrown on top of one another. And you find all the, the tangled pathways that what originally started out as a 
cow path became a, a walking path for people, which became a dirt road, which eventually became a, a stone road alleyway that then became a broad thoroughfare with markets on top of it. You know, every generation just churns under and entombs the prior generation as it builds up this city. And I just found so much pleasure in excavating those different layers. It was encouraging to my faith in a way that I had not expected to see the city that you see described in, in scripture and all of the conversation around Zion and so forth that has endured through the years and retained this memory of suffering and faithfulness and victory and the sacred in the dust. And it's all woven together in kind of this messy human history. So I loved putting that together. We spent two weeks in the old city just seeing what kind of bizarre places we could get into. We were able to get into the, the Dome of the Rock and see the foundation stone and go underneath that into the Well of Souls. We were able to spend a night in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and go down into a cave underneath it that's called the Chapel of St. Varden that you almost never get to get to see. It's one of the very earliest examples of Christian art that's down there. And it's one of the things that suggests that this is actually remembered and was remembered very, very early as the place where Jesus was killed and buried. So uh, it was just a fascinating experience. I enjoyed uh, collaborating with you on it as well. Well, it's such a, you know, I, I can't, agree more in terms of kind of the the magic of Jerusalem. I yeah. remember the the first time I went with Philos and I went with a group of artists and writers and um, there was one night where we were kind of sitting up late and one of the Philos directors was like, hey, we should go into the old city. Like, I've got something to show you. So a group, there was four or five of us and we went into the old city and everything's golden at night. I mean, it just has this glow. Yeah. He starts leading us through alleyways and of course we're all totally lost and you know, next thing you know, we're walking up a flight of steps and we're standing on the rooftops looking down at the Western Wall. And the weight and the significance of the place when you're standing there, you kind of can't describe it. But part of what yeah. I loved about the podcast was it does feel like an excavation. I mean, that's part of what you describe in the uh, description of the show, but it, it does feel like this excavation where the city whose name you've heard a thousand times in your lifetime, I think the effort to make it come alive is really effective. So, Yeah, a vast part of the world comes together in this very small space in the old city of Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And whether you're on the, the Mount of Olives uh, just outside the old city and at the Basilica of the Agony, or, you know, you make your way into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, or the Herba Synagogue, or the, uh, the Western Wall, or the Dome of the Rock, and the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and so forth. I mean, the Jewish, Christian, and Muslim worlds all collide in this very, very small space. And when you're there at the Western Wall, you know, I describe what it was like one time when I went there and it was the ninth of Av, which is a day of profound mourning for Jews because it's the day that the city was 
sacked multiple times. <laughs> it's uh, really a remarkable thing where so many tragedies have befallen the Jewish people on the ninth day of the Jewish month of Av. And uh, so I happened to be there, and it was just a, a riot of lament. And when you're standing there at the Western Wall, and it's it's illuminated gold, like you say, it's like you're standing at the golden beating heart of the universe. And there is a sense of divine presence and intensity there that I think is really captivating. Well, fast forward a little bit. It's 2018. And at some point, you know, I don't know if your phone rings or it's an email, but you hear from the folks at Christianity Today. They want to talk to you about this this opening for the, the present CEO. I remember hearing you say that initially you were kind of disinterested. What was going through your head when you first heard from the, the search committee? Well, to be clear, so I had done a little bit of consulting for CT and had a deep love for the ministry, a deep love for the gentleman who was the president CEO at the time, Harold Smith. And um, yeah, I heard from a, an executive search firm who were curious whether I was willing to be among what would have been a fairly large number of people at that point who would kind of have their hat in the ring. And I, I said, no, I, I couldn't imagine leaving my business. I couldn't imagine leaving my team. And I really couldn't imagine my wife consenting to leave Atlanta. <laughs> she had been raised in Atlanta after, you know, seasons of life in California, New Jersey, and Boston. We had made our way to Atlanta. We had three kids and we had just adopted one. And it's also true to say that I just didn't have a compelling vision for the future of this ministry. It's not to say that there wasn't a compelling vision to be found, but you know, the media space is an incredibly complicated space. And generally the magazine part of that space is, or has been seen to be contracting. Executive search firm, they said, well, are you 99% no or 100% no? Which I think is a very clever question. <laughs> and I was convicted that I should at least pray about it, that it would be um, presumptuous on my part if I didn't at least pray and make sure that God wasn't calling me to consider this. So I said 99% no, but I'll pray about it. And the process moved relatively slowly. So I had a couple months you know, after that point where I could just pray and, and see whether God was putting anything on my heart, and it wasn't happening. Now, I had an interview coming up, and I wanted to withdraw from the process. I didn't want to take up a spot, but I wanted to share some ideas that might be worthwhile for anybody who did eventually take this role. And so I began to think about what's a vision that I could share, and then I could withdraw from the process with a clean conscience. And this got to about, it was September 28th of 2018, the rest of the family was in bed and, and I was getting ready for bed. And this question came back to mind of what would this, what would a vision for the future be for Christianity today that would be exciting? And what I heard in that moment in a way that's never happened to me before as a, you know, I don't come from a charismatic background. I'm certainly open to those things, but this was just a new experience for me. And what I heard in that moment was my bride is beautiful. She needs a storyteller. And that wasn't language that I was in the habit of using. And it just kind of fell like a load of bricks upon my shoulder, partly because of this deep sense of the passion and profundity of God's love for the church and a broken heartedness 
that the reputation of his bride is harmed. And the world rushes in to tell every story of Christian misconduct, right? If there's a, a fall from grace or a, a story of hypocrisy or intolerance, then the world rushes in to tell that story. Far, far more common are the stories of men and women all around the world, right? That's right down the street, that's in every corner of the planet, who are following the call of Christ in ways that are extraordinary and redemptive and self-sacrificial and unimpeachably good. Those stories are far more common and yet they're not told, even in many cases where they're utterly newsworthy and utterly captivating. They're not told. And so, you know, the harm done to the reputation of the Bride of Christ is partly our own doing, but also partly not. And if the vision was to be a storyteller of the global church, then that suddenly felt like something that I could give my life to, that I could give myself to heart and soul. That was the other reason why it fell on me like a ton of bricks, because it felt not like here's an idea for you to share, but here's something that I'm calling you to give yourself to. And that was terrifying. I was I was quite comfortable leading my own business. And what I had imagined as a next step, if there was a next step, was just, you know, getting to a point where I didn't even have to run the business very much and someone else ran it for me and I could take the proceeds from that and live a life as a writer. That was the dream. And here was, you know, a calling to take the leadership of a of a larger organization and devote what was clearly going to be a considerable amount of energy and time to that. Mm. So I spent the rest of the night typing up ideas into my phone of what it might look like for Christianity today to be a storyteller and sage of the global church and what I might be able to do with my business. But the real challenge was going to be talking with my wife. So I get up the next morning. It's a Saturday morning. I'm planning, okay, maybe I can arrange a babysitter. I can take her out to lunch and share with her the bad news that we might have to actually think about this. And I had mentioned to her about two months previous that I had gotten that call, but that was it. We hadn't talked about it since then. I had no idea she was even thinking about it anymore because we were kind of dismissive at first. Not because it wasn't an amazing opportunity and it isn't an amazing ministry, but it just seemed impossible for us to contemplate that we would do that. But before I could even bring it up that morning, but totally unprompted by me, she looks to me and says, you know, I've been praying about it and I think you should pursue that CT job. And if God calls us to go, then we need to be willing to go. Hmm. If you know my wife, that was a total miracle. Because the whole reason we had left Boston was because of the weather. And her family is based in, in Atlanta. Very, very deep and rich uh, relational network there in Atlanta. For her, you know, God had moved in her heart to be willing to, to follow if this is where God was calling us to go. Hmm. I mean, it's interesting because... When I imagine you stepping into that role, there's sort of this dual burden of you have to have a picture like you've just described of, of where you think CT can go, but you're also, in a sense, you know, stewarding an organization with, what is it, a 64, 65-year history? Do you feel like you have the ground under your feet at this point, or is the learning curve still uh, pretty steep? It's been a steep learning curve, that's for sure. This is an, a, an organization with um, a really wonderful legacy, but it is a long legacy and a complex one. In addition to Christianity Today magazine, CT, 
there are so many other things that have been under the banner of Christianity Today International, or the kind of legal entity, whether that's books and culture or leadership journal or today's Christian woman or campus life. I mean, there's a long list of some of which continue today, some of which don't. But getting my head around the history of the organization, that continues. I I feel like I have a a relatively uh, proficient grasp of, of the history at this point, but it's a very deep history. And so there's there's still a lot to learn. And of course, you just have to learn the rhythms and, and the textures of an organization and the people that you're working with and how the org chart works and what the processes are. And also, of course, there are people who've been here 10, 20, 30, 40 years who have tremendous amount of insight about where are the opportunities and what are the, the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, right? So I uh, came in with a, a sense of where I believed God was leading us, but also knew that I would be a fool not to listen first. And so I, I took the organization through a collective discernment process of you know, I wanted to know what are other people hearing from God. And so I encouraged everybody to take a, take a day, don't come into work, go someplace special to you, pray, reflect, and come back with your answers to three questions. What do you think are God's dreams for the future of this ministry? What role do you see yourself playing within that? And what impact would this have upon the world? And so everybody across the ministry did that. And the danger was, we have about 75 employees. The danger was that you would come back, you'd have 75 people passionately committed to wildly different visions for the future of the ministry. And so some people warned me, you know, don't do that. You're the person, you need to go to the mountain then and come down and tell everybody where they're going. Then there were other people who said, no, you know, trust that if God's speaking to you, that he's going to speak to them too. And, and that was really what happened. What emerged out of that was a remarkable consensus on where God was leading this ministry. Now, I then had to do some work to put it all together and, and articulate it, but it, it resonated so deeply with my own sense of calling. So now, you know, our vision, our vision statement is the church more faithful to Christ and the world more drawn to Him. Mm. But our mission is to elevate the storytellers and sages of the global church. So as we reflected on this further, it's not that CT, it's not that, you know, this staff, this, or even the, you know, the editorial team is sitting in Carroll Stream, Illinois, is the storyteller and sage of the global church. It is that, you know, we've created and we're in the process of creating this incredible global network of contributors and they're the storytellers and sages, and that includes the staff, but it also includes people all around the planet. So that's why we say our, our mission is to elevate the storytellers and sages of the global church. And as we do that, as we press out in a dramatically more global direction, then we're building this sort of central nervous system for the global body and allowing it to communicate and to coordinate. And we're advancing as storytellers and sages, we're advancing the stories and ideas of the kingdom of God. And that I think is incredibly important and incredibly strategic to helping the church become, you know, more beautiful and showing the beauty of the bride of Christ to the world. I can't help but think, I mean, as you describe this, you know, we live in this incredibly kind of turbulent time, a complicated time for evangelicals, divisions over theological questions, uh, divisions over race, divisions over politics. 
How do you feel like that that vision speaks to that disunity? And and are you optimistic that you know that kind of storytelling can contribute to bringing about some restoration or reconciliation in the midst of it? Well, first of all, I'm shocked to hear that you think that this is a disruptive. Uh, <laughs> um, <it's>, uh, <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh. No, it's. A, I think it's a really it's a Kairos moment for the church, for the American church. I think it's really important to get a global perspective on what God is doing around the planet. It serves to put our own squabbles into perspective. I think there are things that the American church continues to have to share with the rest of the world, as well as things that the American church has to learn from the rest of the world. And it's only as we kind of lift our eyes above the day-to-day, in-the-trenches sort of disputes that we have domestically that we're able to see that big picture. So I think that's that, number one, is incredibly important. I think it's also important to have a place like Christianity Today that can model what it means to have an opinion and yet to invite other views graciously to the table. So I published a a piece called The Flag in the Whirlwind, but it talks about the flag in the table, right? The flag is you're you're planting a flag there. you, You have convictions and we all have convictions and that's wonderful, but we also need to invite people to the table and to have uh, that sort of uh, kingdom banquet with people unlike ourselves, people socioeconomically, ethnically, geographically, denominationally, unlike ourselves, and recognize our fundamental unity in the body of Christ, learn how to love one another, learn how to be, be humble and listen. And I think we've lost that. I think it's partly the bifurcation of the media landscape. I think it's partly the hyper-politicization and hyper-partisanship of the moment. But Christianity Today was founded in order to be a sort of centering point for the neo-evangelical movement. And it needs to be that today. So we're putting a lot of thought into how can we curate conversations that are multifaceted, multi-perspectival, that get at some of the most challenging issues facing the church today through story, through commentary, through biblical exposition, through the written word, through audio and video. And how do you do that in a way that actually brings healing in the church? And I think CT is one of the few places that can do that. You know, part of what made 2020 difficult for us is that we don't fit neatly into anybody's political program. Mm -hmm. We have a broad set of things that we think the Bible calls us to care about. And that doesn't perfectly align with any party platform. And that's made, you know, people on the left and the right dislike us sometimes. But we're really convinced that what God is calling us to do is to take each issue to Scripture, interrogate it according to the light of Scripture, and without regard to political tribe, to make a conclusion on what God is calling His people to do. So I think we're one of the very few places that can actually serve to bring people left and right together and into a meaningful conversation that hopefully can begin to rebuild a sense of real community across the body of Christ. Well, I love that vision. Um, it's why I'm excited to be here. That's why I'm excited that Cultivated is here. And um, we're excited to have you. <laughs> so given some of that vision, 
what is coming next? What should we be looking forward to in 2021? Well, CT is going through a sort of rebrand process. So toward the end of 2021, I think you'll begin to see some of that. We've also been launching the CT Media stream of content. And so people will see an increasing amount of podcasts and video series coming out of, of CT. And I, I'm really excited about that. There are three strategic initiatives that we're pursuing that I think are relevant for people to know about. One is our global initiative, and that is about dramatically expanding the global storytelling footprint of Christianity today. And, th- and that means hiring editors around the world who are native to their contexts and able to source stories and ideas and able to lift up storytellers and sages within those contexts and also build the audience in the in those spaces too. Another of the strategic initiatives, the second is is the Big Tent initiative. And that's about better representing the diversity of the North American church. And again, that's diversity in, in multiple spectra, but it's if we are going to be elevating the storytellers and sages of the global church, we need to do that well, even here at home, and we can do that better. And then the third is what we just call very unimaginatively our community initiative. And that's about, you know, how do we build community around our content? If we're going to elevate the storytellers and sages, we don't know who all those people are. There are a lot of people out there and we want to lift up the next generation of storytellers and sages. We don't know where all the stories are and the ideas are, and we want to involve all of our readers and build more of a sense of community. So it's not all top-down content, but also bottom-up. And so you'll see a lot about that. Doing all of that involves a lot of partnerships and and bringing people on board for support. So yeah, if any of your readers out there can think of you know things that might be interesting collaborations or partnerships or have an interest in supporting this kind of thing, then you know, we know that we need meaningful partners and friends in order to achieve the vision God has put in front of us. But the last thing that I would note is that our December issue was a real sort of uh, foretaste of the global scope that I'm talking about. So if any of your readers have not had a look at that yet, your listeners, I should say, have not had a look at that yet, I'd encourage them to do so. The December issue, it pulls together some really remarkable stories of what God is doing through his people around the planet. And the online version of that also weaves in multiple media. So I'm really excited about that to give people kind of a a sense of where we're going. First he sings and then he goes And what it means is hard to know All right, thanks for listening. We're really excited about what's to come. This episode was produced by me. It was edited by Mark Owens. Our theme song is Eden Was a Garden by Roman Candle. And our music is by Dan Phelps. If you want to check out the Jerusalem podcast, the link is in our show notes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys, you know? A pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just These Guys, you know?